0: Welcome to her story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez. This episode is not about a particular historical figure, but about an embattled group of women known as the Nyai, housekeepers companions, and concubines in the former Dutch East Indies or present-day Indonesia. We learn about them through several narratives, the most popular of which is Nyai Ontosoro's story from the 1980 novel This Earth of Mankind. We're going to start with a bit of background, how Indonesia was colonized and how the Nyais came to be. Then we'll end with the life stories of several Nyai, as immortalized in novels and newspapers of the time. Fans of true crime will especially appreciate the last story we have in this episode, so this is also a trigger warning for some violent events that will be depicted. During the rule of the Dutch East Indies Company, men had made free with the Asian slave women of their households. After 1860, however, there was no more domestic slavery. Men living in concubinage now sought their companions among the free population of the Indonesian villages. The woman selected assumed management of the Europeans' household and staff, a position that gave rise to the common colonial euphemism for concubine, housekeeper. It became customary for the concubine to exchange her colored or indigo cabaya for a white one and to adopt slippers, The clothing symbolizing her new status and passage from the Indonesian to the halfway world of a bachelor-centered indie society. Jean Taylor, The Social World of Batavia, Europeans and Eurasians in Dutch Asia, 1983 Taylor euphemistically uses the Dutch term housekeeper, heishouster, rather than nyai, a word that has various literal meanings across Indonesian languages in Balinese, it meant sister, in Sundanese, miss or young lady, in Batawi, grandmother. But in the context of the Dutch East Indies, it came to mean something else entirely, a word that carried a world of meaning. This initially respectful form of address to women became adapted to define the status of a native concubine, housekeeper, or mistress in a colonial Dutch East Indies household. Dutch history in Indonesia goes back to the tail end of the 1500s when the first Dutch expedition set sail for the so called East Indies. Four ships with 249 men and 64 cannons set out under Cornelis de Houtman, who had spent many years in Lisbon and knew what the Portuguese were doing there. If you want to know what eventually happened to Cornelis and his brother Friedrich, go listen to episode 4 Admiral Koumelahayati and the Inong Ballet. I don't want to give any spoilers, but that's a good story. Anyway, once the first expeditions returned to the Netherlands with a proof of concept, as it were, competing Dutch shippers scrambled for a share of the Indonesian spices. In 1598, 22 ships of five different companies set sail. Fourteen eventually returned. The fleet under Jacob van Neck was the first to reach the Spice Islands of Maluku in March 1599. We've met Jacob van Neck before in episode 2 because he visited and described the court of Ratu Hijau of Petani, Competition was fierce and downright unsustainable. There were four competing Dutch trading agents throughout the spice supplying areas. It was driving prices up, and the increasing supply into Europe was driving profits down. So in March 1602, the competing companies merged to form the United East India Company, or in Dutch, the VOC. VOC stands for a series of words that are very hard to pronounce, so sorry in advance. Verenigde Oste Indische Company. It was granted a charter by the state's general which gave it quasi-sovereign powers to enlist personnel on an oath of allegiance, wage war, build fortresses, and conclude treaties throughout Asia. The VOC prospered through most of the 17th century as the instrument of the Dutch commercial empire in the East Indies. In 1830, they started the cultivation system, a Dutch monopoly on the cultivation of export crops on Java. By the 1860s, around 33% of total Dutch state income was generated from the Javanese colony. Now, throughout all this, as the Dutch pushed out indigenous traders and funneled produce and resources into the European market, they also fundamentally changed the structure of Indonesian society. Which brings us back to the Nyai. The figure of the Nyai, according to Christopher Goldquilt, stands as a problem of modernity. Quote, Governed neither by the marriage system of European colonizers nor by the customs of the colonized, the status of the Nyai constitutes a challenge to social and legal conceptions of domestic relations within an international perspective. Most of what we know about the Nyai comes from the so called Nyai narrative genre. There are some historical accounts, though, we'll tackle that in the last part. The narratives appeared in Dutch and Malay between the 1880s and 1920s. It was written by a variety of figures, Dutch women immigrants, Indies-born men from various backgrounds, Dutch male modernist writers, and forerunners of Indonesia's anti-colonial nationalist movement. The genre virtually disappears in the second decade of the 20th century, but not before giving us some of the most iconic works and characters of Indonesian literature. If this is familiar to you, then you might have read of or heard about the works of a hero of Indonesia's anti-colonial movement, and a champion of human rights and freedom of speech. Despite only having a primary school education, he went on to write more than 30 books, the most popular of which is the Buru Quartet. It's named after Buru Island Detention Camp in Maluku, where Pramudia was imprisoned by the dictator Soharto for over a decade. Pramudia recited the work to his fellow inmates, and later, when he was allowed to write, Other inmates shouldered his labor duties so he could put those words onto paper. Priests and riverboat men smuggled out a text which were not published until the 1980s, so this book isn't part of the initial wave of the nyai narrative genre. Some authors actually called it a reaction to the genre. Under these less-than-ideal conditions, he wrote, This Earth of Mankind, Child of All Nations, Footsteps, and House of Glass. The novel centered upon the life of Minke, an educated Indonesian journalist who was involved in anti-colonial activism against the Dutch in the early 20th century. Minke was based on the real-life journalist Tirto Adi Surjo. In Bumi Manusia, This Earth of Mankind, Minke is introduced to Nyai Ontosoro, who eventually becomes a big part of his life. As a child, Nyai Ontosoro was known as Sanikem. She was sold by her father to T.B. Milyema, a Dutch tuan besar or master, to become a concubine, essentially a slave, to take care of all the household matters, including satisfying the sexual needs of their masters. They are neither prostitutes who charge for services, nor are they legal wives. It's tricky. It's contradictory. Here's a passage from This Earth of Mankind illustrating the reputation of the Nyai. It felt as if the whole world knew that such, indeed, was the moral level of the families of Nyais, low, dirty, without culture, moved only by lust. They were the families of prostitutes. They were people without character, destined to sink into nothingness, leaving no trace. All social classes had passed judgment on the Nyai, as well as all races, native European, Chinese, Arab. And yet, at the time Minke meets Ontasoro, she is the educated, wealthy, and powerful overseer of an agricultural estate. Her tuan, Miyema, is mentally incapable of managing the estate, so the responsibility is hers alone. Her shame, writes Gogwilt, in being sold by her father colors all the later stages of the narrative, as encapsulated in her refusal to forgive her parents and her insistence on an absolute break with the past. This is why, after Meliema sleeps with her for the first time, she forgoes her given Javanese name, Senikem, and assumes the title Nyai. Under colonial modernity, she was the housekeeper and mother of a bourgeois family who rejected her Javanese past while still, in the eyes of the law, a slave of a colonial tuan. As you can guess, this presented problems quite specific to late Dutch East Indies Colonial Society. We'll talk about that after the
1: break. Hi, we're Tuk Tuk Box. We're passionate food lovers and culture junkies dedicated to telling the stories of our diaspora. We're an online retailer focused on showcasing Southeast Asian culture and experiences through food. We offer an array of Southeast Asian subscription boxes and products through our partnerships with vetted small business owners and local farmers. Everything we offer is exclusively a product of Southeast Asian entrepreneurs, creatives, and chefs made using carefully crafted ingredients and recipes from our own community. We are proud to share refugee, migrant, and intergenerational stories in every box we produce. We also hope to shed light on the stories of Southeast Asian changemakers and leaders. Through this platform, it is our goal to bridge the gap between the rich history and culture of our ancestors and homeland to our growing audience. In telling these stories, we aim to foster conversations around racism and colorism in our society, ultimately helping make social change. We are 100% Southeast Asian owned and female founded. Check out our various products now on our website tuktukbox.com. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok under @tuktukbox. Hope you discover something new. Stay safe and stay snacking. As soon as
0: I regained consciousness, I knew I was no longer the Sanikem of the previous day. I'd become a real Nyai, and the name Sanikem disappeared forever. Nyayon Tosoro and Pramudhi Nanta Tours This Earth of Mankind. The main conflict between European marriages and the cohabitation between a European Tuan and a native Nyai was mainly about the legitimacy of children born into either domestic arrangement. Stories written about the Nyai were precisely about this the plight of the abandoned Nyai, who were more often anxious over the fate of her children. In this Earth of Mankind, Nyayon Ontosoro has two children, Robert and Annalise. Annalise eventually marries the journalist Minke. We'll get back to this in a bit. In mainstream literature, perhaps the most important Nyai narrative is the 1896 novel Nyai Dasima by G. Francis. This novel is also prominently mentioned in This Earth of Mankind, and it has since been adapted into stage plays and films, beginning with a commercially successful 1929 silent film. Advertised as based on a true story, Dasima is the nyai of an Englishman, Edward William, and she lived with him and their daughter Nancy in Batavia or modern day Jakarta. However, things become complicated when a delman or horse carriage driver, Samyun, falls in love with Dasima despite already being married to another woman named Hayati. Samyun and his friend manipulate Desima into thinking she committed the sin of extramarital sex with Edward William. She runs away with him and becomes his second wife, taking her gold and jewels with her. Hayati, the first wife, agrees to the marriage as she could then take advantage of Dasima's wealth. Eventually, Dasima realizes she has been tricked and hides her remaining wealth. Samyun hires a thug, Poasa, to rob her after she goes to see a play. The robbery goes wrong and Puasa kills Dasima and throws her body off a bridge. In a twist of fate, Her body washes up behind the house of the Englishman Edward William, her one. Samyun and Puasa are caught and sentenced to hang. In Nyai Dasima, the Nyai is a victimized heroine, not the cunning seductress that they are typically stereotyped as. Trapped between native Javanese or Islamic and European or Christian family structures and values, she eventually becomes a tragic story told and retold over the years. Nyai on too, has a tragic end in this earth of mankind, when her tuan, Meyama is found murdered. Nyai on immediately comes under suspicion, as cunning nyais conspiring to kill their tuans was yet another stereotype. In the novel, the Dutch-language press cited at least five nyais who had gone to the gallows for precisely that crime. After the murder, Meyema's legally legitimate son, Moritz, takes control of the family estate and decides the fate of Ontosora's daughter, Annalise. Because Meyema acknowledged Robert and Annalise as his children, legal parental rights under Dutch colonial rule were granted solely to him. The court sided with Moritz and he was able to take Annalise away from both her Javanese mother and Javanese husband, Minke. Both watched helplessly as Annalise was taken to the Netherlands. We skipped a lot of the story here, so if you want to know more, there's an excellent 2019 film adaptation by Hanung Bramantyo. I'll link the trailer in the description box. There are other two stories about Danyai that I wanted to talk about. The first is Heren van de Thie, a 1992 Dutch novel by Hella Haas based on real people and on actual events. The author used documents, records, and memorabilia of the Van der Hoch and Associates Indies Tea and Family Archive Foundation. In his words, Herenbandithee is a novel, but it is not fiction. The novel is about the Kirchhoven family, who lived south of Bandung in the late 19th or early 20th century. In the story, Rudolf E. Kirchhoven moves to Java and finds out about the family secret, his uncle. Edward, lives with Goy Lanyo, a Chinese woman in concubinage. Jean Taylor writes, This is a time when colonial values dictated that the housekeeper be unseen, retiring to the back part of the house after serving European guests. Such invisibility gave currency to extravagant notions about the mistress. According to the Dutch genealogy documents, they had three children who were recognized by their father and thus given his family name, Pauline, Adrian, and Caroline. Gowi became his nyai in 1863 and died in childbirth in 1871. Rudolf Kirkoven hears that his uncle has taken another nyai, a Sundanese woman this time, before eventually leaving for the Netherlands with his two oldest children. His children with six Sundanese nyais went unacknowledged. That is, as far as the Dutch branch of the family was concerned. When the scholar Tineke Helwig visited the estate, she found that the Indonesian branch of the family did keep a record of the six children he had with the Sundanese Nyais, the last of whom was born in 1892 when Edward was 58 years old. According to Helwig's interviews, when a sundanese Nyai got pregnant, Edward would find her a local husband so that the child was born of a legal marriage. Quote, When I solicited the reactions to such conduct, the Indonesians commented, Oh, that was just common then, Sudabhyasa. They did not seem to give it a second thought, and they did not consider it a lack of commitment or loyalty on Edward's part, nor were they disturbed by the fact that the women, their grandmothers, had to resign themselves completely to the white master's wishes and that they were discarded if he wished to. Dineke and myself, for that matter, couldn't help but marvel at how different the times were. Even though he did not formally recognize them and concealed their existence from his Dutch relatives, the historical Edward Kirkovin offered them a choice, either to pursue an education at his expense or to be given a piece of farmland which he purchased for them. They all chose to have a piece of land as land ownership was a sign of wealth and it enhanced their status. After four to six years of primary school education, the sundanese Kirkovin offspring would make a living by tilling the land. Because Edward left his children, and therefore their mothers, with some substantial resources, he is still considered a well-respected person around Sinagar. His descendants still had the typical Eurasian characteristics, a light brown skin, tall stature, and a pointed nose, which was desirable in society. Edward died and was buried on his estate in Sinagar in 1905. The second novel that Dineke talks about is Toa Pitback's Hikayat Pembunuhan Dorman, published in 1926. Like Haas's novel, this is kejadian Yang betul, something that really happened. In 1925, the Dutch tea planter, Jan Didrik Dorman, was assassinated in Klapanunggal. Most of the news at the time was about his violent death, so Toa Bach's novel focused on his life instead. And what a life it was! Besides the novel, Helwig also looked at newspaper articles from the time and found the following. Around 1900, the 30-year-old Dorman meets a Sundanese contract worker named Asmana while working in a tobacco estate in Delhi, East Sumatra. They develop a secret relationship and eventually Dorman decides to make Asmana his nyai. He pays off the advanced salaries she received from the tobacco estate owner. A year later, their son Christian is born, and the two officially marry. Another year passes, and a second son, Gerard, is born, which prompts the family to move back to Parakan Salak, Asmana's hometown, where she gives birth to a third son, Willem. They return to Delhi, where Asmana gives birth to their daughter, Agatha, and another unnamed infant. Sadly, Gerard and the unnamed infant die in infancy. By this time, it's 1911, the family settles in Klapanungal and Dorman finds work in different plantations, one of which was owned by Alex Hall, Edward Kirkoven's cousin. In Klapanunggal, Dorman takes Anyai, Tan Pitnyo, a Chinese woman 30 years younger than him, with Asmana's consent. Tan Pitnyo actually used to help Asmana out with the chores. But this is when things seem to go awry, because by 1925, the family falls apart. Christian and Willem cannot keep any job and they just live with their knives in the vicinity and Agatha does as she pleases. Dorman becomes abusive towards them and eventually moves in with Tani and their son, Jacob, in a pavilion in his estate, while Asmana and Agatha continue to live in the main house. On the night of Tuesday, February 17, 1925, three raiders enter the pavilion and assault Dorman. Two men hold him down and the third repeatedly stabs him in his abdomen. They take money and jewelry with them, making the motive appear to be a robbery gone wrong. Tani Epitño, who was unharmed in the attack, shouts for help and Asmana and the three children tend to them while the police are called. Dorman, however, dies before he reaches the hospital and is buried the next day. An investigation ensues, of course, and all is revealed when Amat, Dorman's stable boy, is interrogated. He confesses that Asmana, Christian, and Willem masterminded the murder. They actually attempted to use poison and black magic on Dorman before hiring three men to kill him. Taniye Pitnyo, who witnessed the murder but was too afraid to intervene, was able to identify them. In Doa Pitback's novel, Dorman is portrayed positively and with appreciation. The newspapers, however, were very critical of him, since a European man would, as a rule, not openly have more than one sexual partner. In the eyes of fellow Europeans, polygyny indicated the extent to which a man had gone native and degraded himself. Asmana's story is different because she was both Saint Denis and a legal wife, who had to contend with the realities of her Dutch husband taking a nyay to disastrous consequences. Significantly, however, Asmana chose to eliminate Dorman and not Tani Taniyepitnyo, which diverges from another stereotype we find in most stories involving polygamy or polygyny of the wives fighting each other. By all accounts, they got along quite well. In the end, Dorman's stable boy and the three suspects were imprisoned, and Asmana, Christian, and Willem were brought to the European court. Christian might have also been convicted of murder, but nobody really knows what happened to them after this. These morbid stories of murder stemming from the Nyai setup was not uncommon at the time. In the unpublished memoirs of F.H. Van Ries' Beninga, he talks about Otisa, the former Sundanese Nyai of Jongkir, Boreal. When Boreal married a Dutch wife, the couple started to suffer from all kinds of ailments— When they left for Holland, however, they miraculously became better. Nobody at Borils' estate doubted that Otisa played a role in those events. There's also a story, related by a Mrs. Postmoren, about how, at the Medari Sugar Plantation where her father was bookkeeper, a young man returned from a furlough in the Netherlands with his Dutch bride. His former nyai felt embittered, and soon the young man died. It turned out the cook had mixed bamboo hairs into his food, at the Nyai's instigation. So what's the point of all these stories? There is perhaps no better way to illustrate the tension of Dutch colonial rule than the Nyai. In many ways, the Nyai is a transitional figure caught between social standings, ethnicities, nationalities, moralities, religions, economies, and legal systems. But it's also very easy to see the Nyai as victims, that is, women without agency. As we've seen in these narratives and snippets of history, while they were all, at one point or another, robbed of control over their lives, they negotiated and responded in a variety of ways. Some of them tried to fight the system, others resorted to poison and worse, and still others, as in the case of Edward Kirkovin's descendants, seemed to have leveraged the unequal circumstances to benefit them as much as they possibly could. The Nyai were not unwitting players in the larger context of colonization, but active participants who deserve as much attention as other, more widely studied topics of the time period. Thank you so much for listening to this rather long episode. Special thanks to our patrons. We now have 13 patrons, which is the most number ever, so maraming salamat, trimakasi, to Keiro, B by Milish, Jennifer, Christina, Raul, Raymond, Chito, Matt, Shireen, Charlie, Chanda, Yati, Kara, and Mando. Your support means everything to this show. If you want to join the Patreon, you can give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. And if you can't join us in the Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStorySeaPod. That's HerStory, S-E-A, Pod. There's so many more stories to tell, and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.